We will be in Acts 15 this afternoon as we continue our journey through the book of Acts and continue our series on what it means to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can see in your worship order that I've titled this Presbytery versus a sect of Pharisees, the gospel and the nations, because that is the case at hand and that is the issue at hand in this story. And this title hopefully will make a little bit more sense after we read the passage of scripture together. If you are willing and able, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from Acts 15, 4 to 22. Hear the word of God. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to communicate this decision to the church. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Let me give you a little background to where we are up to this point. If you're reading the book of Acts, 
In the first 13 chapters, you know that the gospel has been preached in synagogues and in cities among Jewish people, people who were influenced by the Jews in places where the law and the prophets had been read and taught and proclaimed week in and week out. But as you go forward in the book of Acts, there is a transition. Peter has been the apostle to the Jews, and that's what's taken up most of Acts 1 to 13. But now there's a change, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning to the nations. And the the author is going to help us follow the story of Paul. And Paul is going to take the gospel out to people who don't know the law and the prophets necessarily. He's going to be among people who are not aware of all of the stories of the Old Testament, who aren't going to know about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he's still going to go and bring the gospel to them. These are people who are steeped in idolatry and in the philosophy of the Greeks, and Paul is going to interact with them and bring the gospel to bear on them. And as he does that, things are going to get very messy and things are going to look very different than they did prior uh, to Paul's mission to the Gentiles. A lot of things are going to change. And that's why we have this controversy and this issue in Acts 15. The question that comes up among the Jewish Christians and among uh, those who have been steeped in the law and the prophets, they want to know. What must these non-religious, non-Jewish people do in order to be saved? Well, there's a sect of Pharisees. And the Pharisees who are very conservative and, and committed to the law and the prophets and, and very leery of giving up on those things because of what their forefathers had done. These guys want to make sure that everything is on the up and up. All the T's are crossed, all the, all, the di, all, all the I's are dotted. They want to make sure that everything is tightened up here. And so they say, we think that what needs to happen to all of these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus is that they need to be circumcised and they need to keep the law of Moses, meaning they need to keep the ceremonial law of Moses. That is a long way around for them to say, Those Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be Christians. And so this is the controversy that in Acts 15, the story of the Jerusalem council is that the apostles and the elders of churches gather together to discuss and debate the intent and the extent of the gospel, the intent and the extent of the gospel. What is the purpose of the gospel and for whom is the gospel? How far reaching does the gospel go? And that's what they want to debate. And so we see them doing this. I'm calling this a presbytery meeting because throughout the text, you see it's about elders in conversation and elders discussing this important thing and elders who had come together to consider the matter. The word elder in Greek, by the way, is uh, the word presbyter. We get our word presbyter from that. And so um, this is the the background of our own tradition. Where churches that are connected to each other send their leaders to deal with matters that affect all of the churches. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But the thing they're doing here is they are trying to debate and wrestle with this question together. And they're going to hash it out. And there's going to be a lot of give and take. 
And so what you have is the Pharisees have said, this is what we think should happen. They are moving that the Gentiles should receive circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant that God gave to the Jews, and that they should keep the ceremonial law. That's the, uh, they are moving that. And then you have speeches against, and we get three speeches against it. The first speech against it comes from Peter, then one from Paul and Barnabas, and then another from James. And notice what they do is they're tackling this issue. They're dealing with this issue and this issue alone. Peter stands up and he tells stories from his missional experience. He points out that God is the one who sent him on mission to the Gentiles, even though he himself was initially the apostle to the Jews. But he goes to the Gentiles as God kicks wide open the door to the nations to bring them into faith in Jesus Christ. Peter's point is that the church should be following God's lead, not the lead of the Pharisees or anyone else, no matter how well-intentioned they might be. We should be following God's lead wherever God leads us. And in this story, God is leading us into the nations to take the gospel to the world, to the ends of the world. Notice his argument here. He says, Three or four really beautiful things about the gospel. Since God wanted the nations to hear the gospel and believe, we should too. We should want what God wants. We should want for the nation what God wants for the nation. God wanted the nations to hear the gospel and believe. That's the thing we should desire for the nations as well. The second thing he says is, since God is the heart knower, that's how he puts it in Greek, God is the heart knower and we are not, we should trust God's testimony and God's witness about the nations. If God looks at the nations and says, I want them, Yes, I can see their hearts and I can see the sin and the darkness in their hearts, but I want them to come to me. I want them to come to my son and find forgiveness of sins and life. God is the one who knows the heart and we don't. There's no need in us making judgments based on superficial things, the color of skin and the way people look on the outside. God knows the heart and here he is calling the nations to his son by the ministry of the gospel. And then notice what Peter says. God gave them the Holy Spirit and and treated them the same way he treated us. He made no distinction. God shows no partiality or favoritism between the Jews and the nations. He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he gave us. And God who knows the heart, this heart knower, look what he did for the hearts of the Gentiles. He cleansed their hearts by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what should our response be? We should welcome them. We should receive them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should welcome them into the family of God. And like you, everyone was silent thinking about what Peter said. Then Paul and Barnabas get up and basically, according to Luke, their report is, Ditto what he said. And then they sit down. And then James, the Lord's brother, the brother of Jesus Christ, or we should say the half brother of Jesus Christ, 
They had the same mother, different fathers. James, the Lord's brother, the same one who wrote the epistle to James, is an elder in the church in Jerusalem and an influential figure. In fact, you read this story and you think James and not Peter had most of the influence in his presbytery and in the church and among the churches. So James has listened to speeches against the sect of the Pharisees and what the Pharisees want. And notice what James says. James says, yeah, I like what Peter said over there. And he's taken in what Paul said. And then he says, it is my judgment. It is my judgment. It is my settled conviction. It is my settled decision that we should act in this way. And he tells what the way is. I'll get there in a minute. But I want you to see what James does. Very interesting. James connects Peter's missional experience and testimony with the prophetic scriptural testimony. And he links them together and he notes that in Peter's experience, God visited the Gentiles. Just as the prophet said God would do, that God would visit the Gentiles, the remnant of mankind would seek the Lord and the Gentiles who were called by God's name would be brought in. God has declared this from the beginning. In other words, this has always been God's intent and purpose for the nations. This is not a new thing, plan B sort of thing. This is God's fulfillment of his promises for the nations. Now, the idea of visitation here or God visiting is very important to note because in the Old Testament, that could go one of two ways. If you were reading the Old Testament and the scripture said that God was going to visit his people or God was going to visit the nations, you would have to wait to see what that meant. Because it could mean that God is going to visit them for the purpose of bringing judgment and condemnation or destruction upon them. He often visited his people and the nations in that way. Or it could mean that God is going to visit his people and bring deliverance and salvation to them. And that is certainly the way it unfolded among the Gentiles as Peter preached the gospel to them and Paul preached the gospel to them. God was visiting his people among the Gentiles. Jesus had predicted this kind of thing when he described himself as the good shepherd, described himself as the good shepherd who was gathering his sheep. And he said, I have other sheep who are not of this pen. I must gather them also. And he was referring to the Gentiles who are far away that he would be their shepherd and bring them in to his flock. And there would be one flock and one shepherd. And now we see this working out in real space-time history as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ is gathering his people, gathering his flocks. Not just from the religious people, but also from non-religious people. Not just from people who are Bible thumpers, but from people who don't know anything about the Bible. He's not just gathering His people among churches and synagogues. He's going beyond that to where there are no churches and synagogues. He's gathering His people. And this is happening by the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Gospel as the people of God move out into the nations on mission with God to gather these people. 
James sees this clearly and says, God visited them in order to take from them a people for his name, just as he promised. I won't spend time on this right now, but I want to mention that this has to do with God's purpose of election. That by grace, God has chosen a people for his name, for himself, from the Jews and the Gentiles to make them a part of his family. And I don't want you to think that when you hear the word election, that that means that God has only chosen a tiny select few of people. As we see in the scriptures and in the history of the world, God has chosen his, in his purpose of election, a number of people that no one can count. It's so vast and so great. Such is the grace of God towards the Jews and the Gentiles. So James says, this is my judgment. This is my settled conviction, my decision on the matter. This is my opinion and what I think we should do. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The NIV translates this in an unfortunate way. If you're reading the NIV and I'm a friend of the NIV, you know that. But I got to pick on them a little bit here because they have we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. And that's not exactly what James was saying. It sounds good and we wish it were true, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we should not annoy or trouble them. They're already in Christ. We shouldn't go about agitating them and making life miserable for them or casting aspersion on their conversion to Christ or sowing seeds of doubt among them. We shouldn't do that, guys. I was listening to a sermon of a very well-known, very well-known celebrity pastor. Uh, He's all over the Internet. He has a large, gigantic church out east. And uh, he's very well known. And he said that he has made this translation. We should not make it difficult for people. The basis of his ministry. And I know he means well. I know he means well. But unfortunately, he's misguided in a sense. Because he didn't see what was actually being said here. This isn't about making it easier for people. That's not what James is getting at. Nor is it about making it harder for people. That's not the issue. It's not about easy and hard. It's about peace and unity. So these people have come into the faith and we need to pursue unity with them. And we need to maintain the peace and unity of the Holy Spirit together with them. Not divide over against them over these uh, cultural and religious questions. So James is talking about not troubling the Gentiles who had already converted and not troubling those who would eventually convert. What does he mean by trouble them? How would they be troubled? Well, they would be troubled if they were taught that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that they had received the sign and seal of God's covenant promises and baptism. And they were gathered for worship and eating at the Lord's table and living the Christian life. And then they are told, that's not enough. You need to do more. You're lacking in something. And they said, what what do you mean? What do I need? 
Well, we need to take a little bit of your flesh off. And then we need to pile upon you all of these ceremonial laws that you've been neglecting. That would trouble people, wouldn't it? It would trouble them because they would think, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was living by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And now you're telling me it's not enough. And James says, no, we don't need to trouble them. And when James says we don't need to trouble them, it's a very gracious way of saying you sect of Pharisees need to leave these guys alone. We're watching you. We've got our eyes on you. And so the apostles and elders make it very clear what the gospel of salvation is and what it is not. And this is where I want you to dial in. If you've been thinking deeply about some of the other things I've said just now, I want you to come back and think about this for just a moment. The apostles are telling us what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And this is what the gospel is not. The gospel is not Jesus plus circumcision. The gospel is not Jesus plus sacrificial offerings. It is not Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. It is not Jesus plus any part of the ceremonial law of Moses. No one needs to become a devout, observant Jew before they can become a devout Christian and follower of Jesus. This is the decision of the council. So at this presbytery meeting, Judaizing was unanimously condemned and soundly defeated. In other words, the apostles and elders put a target on the sect of the Pharisees and said to them, we're not going to tolerate this. This is heresy. This is not orthodoxy. You are bringing a different gospel other than the gospel we've all been preaching. And we anathematize this. We condemn this to hell. We will not tolerate this. This is what the council is getting at. Now, it doesn't mean that the moral law of God is no longer in effect for all of us are called to live according to the moral law of God. In other words, we're not to make idols. We're not to have other gods in front of us. We shouldn't blaspheme the name of God. We should rest and worship on the Sabbath. We should honor our father and mother and on and on it goes. We should pursue all of those things. But we should not treat the Ten Commandments as a stairway to heaven. They were never given to us for that purpose. They were given to us by our father to his sons and daughters to say, this is what I expect of you, how I want you to live as members of my family. This is what I want you to do as members of my household. And so the apostles and elders write a brief letter and send it out to the churches. And they don't say everything in the letter that you might expect them to say. But they do point out that people need to be very careful about the dynamics of idolatry in the world. And one of these specific things mentioned here are the dynamics of sexual immorality associated with idolatry. And I want to suggest to you that of all the things mentioned in this little brief letter that you find tucked into Acts 15, this part of the letter is absolutely relevant for us in our day. And if you want to know more about what the apostles were getting at, I would encourage you to take some time to read Leviticus 18. 
Because what they say in this brief letter is rooted and grounded in this holiness code given to us in the book of Leviticus, especially Leviticus 17 and 18. But 18 is what deals with the issues of sexuality. And so I would encourage you in your own time to read through that and think about the relevance of uh, that revelation to us from God. Now, again, we're all obligated to live according to the moral law of God as a way of life, but not as if we were climbing a stairway to heaven. That's not where we're going with this. In fact, just to make sure that you understand what I'm getting at here, I want to put it this way, that the gospel is not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. The gospel is not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. And while we're at it, let me add a few other things the gospel is not. The gospel is not Jesus plus water baptism. And the gospel is not Jesus plus Presbyterianism. And the gospel is not Jesus plus the Westminster Confession of Faith. We could go on and perhaps offend others as well, but why do that? The thing I'm trying to get you to see is that The apostles and elders were settled on this truth that the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified for you and resurrected for you in your place, on your behalf, to save you from sin and death. The gospel is Jesus Christ without any fine print, without any secret hidden agendas. It is the story of the person and work of Jesus Christ for all those whom the Lord our God shall call unto himself. And so you see, hopefully, here in Acts uh, Acts 15, that this is a beautiful story that shows why we need church councils Why we need churches working together, connected together. Why we need ministers of the word and elders working on tough issues together. And hopefully you can see a little bit of how presbytery works. Our presbytery works very much like the thing you see happening in Acts 15. As we hammer out some things that are very important and and sometimes some things that are not very important at all. But we do it for the overall good of the church of Jesus Christ. What you see happening in Acts 15 is that the apostles and elders are tackling a controversial and destructive teaching head on. They're not allowing it to fester and seep in among the congregations of God's people. They fight this thing to the ground and bring it to death. They hold it up to the light of the gospel and they say, this isn't true. This isn't right. This is heresy. This is going to hurt people. We don't want this proclaimed among our people. And so they condemn it. And they communicate that decision to all the churches and they warn everyone about this destructive doctrine. In other words, what you see them doing here is the work that Christ sent elders to do. John Murray, who was a well-known professor at Westminster Theological Seminary back in the day, said the difference between truth and error is not a chasm, but a razor's edge. And that is often the case, isn't it? 
A chasm would be easy to spot and we could stay away from it. But it's the fine cut, the thin line that we must be aware of. The apostles and elders in Jerusalem showed us what to do. They're doing the work that Christ sent them to do. And then Paul later will reflect back on this towards the end of his life as he's encouraging the next generation of ministers of the word and elders. He encourages them by saying, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict, contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. In other words, after all these years, these dudes are still around wreaking havoc and causing trouble. And so the fight continues on. Paul says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so there's a moral obligation that elders have to ferret out these doctrines, to discern things for the sake of the church and to defend and protect the church against such teachings. And so the apostles and elders did a lot of hard work at their presbytery meeting for the sake of the church under their care. And while we might not understand all of the ins and outs and all of the details of what's going on, what we can understand is that they were doing what they considered to be the most pastoral thing they could do for the sake of the church and for the life of God's people. John Calvin says the pastor ought to have two voices, one voice for gathering the sheep, another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves, and that the scriptures supply him with the means of doing both. If you would go back to Acts 15, you can hear the Apostle Peter doing this very thing, gathering the sheep and then warding off and driving away thieves and wolves. In one part of his speech against the sect of the Pharisees, which I overlooked, and now I want to bring your attention to it. He says, why are you Pharisees putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, carry, sustain, endure? This is the voice of a pastor warding off and driving away thieves and wolves who would seek to harm the flock of God. And then notice the voice of a pastor calling the sheep nearby. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And so what is set before the church in Jerusalem, what is set before us always is, Life and death, grace and works, these are always before us. And as tempted as we might be to think that the gospel is about grace getting me started and works finishing me out, that is not the gospel. The gospel is about grace getting you started, grace keeping you going, and grace bringing you all the way to the end. Because it's all about what God in Christ is doing for you and in you. And with you until the end of the age. So is it necessary for any of you to be circumcised or to keep the ceremonial law in order to be saved and counted among God's people? 
The answer is no way. God wants Gentiles like us to hear the gospel and believe that God gave us the Holy Spirit and he treats us the way he treated the rest of his covenant people. That God cleanses our hearts by faith in Jesus Christ. That God saves us by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that is the gospel of God's grace. That the apostles and elders at the Jerusalem Council held to and promoted to all of the church of Jesus Christ, both then and now. And let us do our part to hold fast to this truth and grace for our sake and for the sake of those around us. Let us pray together.